Let's go to Luke chapter 5. Uh, we're going to look at the same passage we've been looking at um, for the last couple of weeks. Also, this is the most awkward announcement I'll ever do in my whole life here. I wrote a book, and, um, which goes to show you the state of Christian publishing. And, um, and, and it came out in April, and we haven't talked about it. The publisher wanted us to do a sermon series on it. We're like, no, we, we were going to preach the Bible and not Mike's books, because there's a little bit of a difference uh, between the two. <laughs> but uh, enough of you have asked, so we're, we have it on sale for less than you can get it in stores uh, afterwards. And then if you really want it signed, I will sign it, but feel very awkward as I sign that thing. So that's all I will sign. I will not sign children. I will not sign... Um, Anything else? Yeah. So, that's that. All right, Luke chapter 5. It's always, I always feel so, you know, conflicted about stuff. I don't want Jesus showing up here with a whip. You know what I'm saying? And turning over tables. So you just got to kind of be. So, there you go. If you're struggling with insomnia, we can help. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, a fancy term for the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. As we commented last week, that little clue indicates they'd been out all night. It was in the morning, so they'd been fishing at night with night fishing nets. They were now cleaning these. If they didn't clean them, they would rot in the process of putting them away. Kind of a pain to do this. And so whatever Jesus is going to ask them to do with the nets means they have to clean them all over again. All right? Jesus got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. Simon we know as Simon Peter. We met him in chapter 4 when uh, Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And Jesus asked Simon to put out a little bit from the shore. And then Jesus sat down, which was the posture of a teacher, and he began to talk to the people. So the boat, the water, the hills formed this natural amphitheater, and he could just speak conversationally, be heard by a whole bunch of folks. When he had finished speaking... He said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Oh, you mean the nets that we just got done cleaning? Those nets? Oh, oh, the nets that we use for night fishing, but isn't it interesting, it's daytime right now. Those nets? Oh, aren't you a carpenter? We're fishermen. Those nets? And so so what you had is you have Peter having very good reasons to go to, to Jesus. Hey, Jesus appreciated what you did with my mother-in-law, but why don't you stick to kind of the spiritual stuff? Fishing's kind of what I do. It's my gig, and it's not working. But instead, what Peter says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Unstated comment. (laughs) Really, Jesus? Really? You know carpenter, we know fish. Let's just leave it at that. But because you say so and you healed my mother-in-law... I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in in the, uh, in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. That's how full they were. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. So Jesus was still seated. He falls at Jesus' knees and says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful Man. Now, what? Did you hear that? 
I was... So what, the, what we talked about last week, just warn me if you're going to sneeze again. Was that a sneeze? Was that, was that sneezing? Okay. Couldn't tell. I didn't know if there was some sort of puppy involved over there or a kitten. So w- w- we commented last week that the wrong net at the wrong time being flooded with fish was so unbelievably miraculous to Peter Instead of looking at the the bankroll he's just inherited or looking at the boats that are sinking, he looks at Jesus and just says, "Who, who are you? And he realizes he's standing in the presence of something much more holy than he. And so he leads with the declaration that many lead with in the presence of deity. Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. And we made the point last week that this is what qualifies Peter for leadership in the revolution. It's not his theological perfection. He doesn't have it. What is going on out there? Some sort of, some sort of plague of sneezingness. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't Peter's you know, theological acumen. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, Peter's moral character, right? I mean, he's going to deny Jesus. He's going to chop off some guy's ear. It, it, it was simply the humble acknowledgement of his undeservedness that qualified him for ministry in God's revolution. And and we just made the point, if you look at Peter's life, and we did that last week, it's up and down and it's left and right and it's imperfect and it's flawed and it's screwy. And yet, his first sermon, 3,000 people come to faith. And yet, he's an apostle, a saint, Peter, And so we just talked a little bit about what kind of person God uses. And it turns out He uses the only kind of people there are, which are sinful, broken people. But the qualification for leadership in the community is humility, not perfection, and for which we are very, very grateful. And and so what Peter does is he sees Him, he recognizes He's in the presence of something way more magnificent than Him, and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Now, One of the reasons why I wanted to revisit this text this morning is because it illustrates how intrusive Jesus of Nazareth wants to be. Here, Jesus takes a fisherman who has been at least an apprentice fisherman, and now he's got his own business, so he's doing okay. Fishing there had been going on for generations, and it's not like there were new technological innovations, so it was pretty well established. Here's how you fished. And here comes a guy who his training isn't in fishing, and who tells the expert fisherman, wrong nets, wrong time, give it a shot. Peter reluctantly says, well, okay. And what this goes to show is that Jesus really isn't interested in the little box that says spiritual life. He's really interested in the whole box of all of life, right? So, so what Jesus says, because if I were Peter, I, I would have very easily said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, Thank you for the counsel. Really appreciate you. That was some good teaching you just gave us. Thanks for the mother-in-law thing. But I know fishing. And, and, and I just respectfully, why don't you stick to the spiritual stuff? I'll take care of the fishing. Right? Peter doesn't say that. Peter says, oh, okay, you know, throw the nets out and boom. His boat is swamped with fish. But what's fascinating is that Jesus stepped into Peter's world and interrupted it. He asked Peter to do something that went against his business sense, his common sense, his fishing sense, and totally violated Peter's practical wisdom and experience. Does Jesus do that same thing today? Yeah. See, I think 
in those days and in these, it's very easily, it's very easy to take the world and divide it into practical issues and spiritual issues. So spiritual issues, hey, a first century Jewish carpenter died for my sins. He gets my sins. I, I spend an hour on Sunday. He gets that hour. Right? He gets some singing and maybe a few bucks or whatever. But, but the first century Jewish carpenter gets my religious life, my moral life, my spiritual life. The problem is, is that the first century Jewish carpenter wants more than that. And, and very easily we can segment, hey, first century Jewish carpenter takes care of sin, but doesn't know anything about sexuality in the 21st century, or running a business in the 21st century, or taking care of kids, or running a household, or fixing a marriage. He doesn't know anything about calculus, or physics, or, or geopolitics, right? He's a first century Jewish carpenter. Now, all the people that know Jesus know that he's Lord of that too, but most of us live as very practical deists. We believe God exists, and, and he's there as kind of a 911 service, but really what I'm supposed to do is trust in my expertise, my wisdom, my common sense, the counsel of others to make decisions. And I just want to show that in this instance, what Jesus invited Peter to do was to go against all of that. See, Jesus wars against the natural ways we compartmentalize. So, so when we say something like, hey, Jesus may have an opinion about how you run your business. See, we can say Jesus is Lord of all without actually letting him be Lord of all, right? We can say he's Lord of all, and there's some good like wisdom in this. But when it comes to my marriage, my sexuality, my business, I'm kind of running it on my own. And we just want to suggest that it's precisely that division between spiritual and practical that this and other stories like them erodes. That Jesus actually knows everything there is to know about electricity. He knows everything there is to know about physics. He knows everything there is to know about calculus and sexuality. He knows everything there is to know. And, and, and I know intellectually we go, oh yeah, of course. But my experience is it's really hard to remind yourself of that in the middle of the daily grind. I'm not saying that it's wrong to consult experts or that it's wrong to get specialization or that it's wrong. I mean, if I had brain surgery and I had to choose between an atheist who'd been trained at the top hospitals or a believer who was a dishwasher and had a word from God about how to do brain surgery... I'm going to go with the atheist probably, right? I believe that Jesus is Lord of all, can use expertise and wisdom. Absolutely. So I'm not saying that, nor am I saying that you have to receive a specific command to do anything, right? I think a lot of times God says, I've given you wisdom, I've given you an intellect, I've given you common sense, I've given you the counsel of others in the scriptures. Decide, move, choose. The problem I find is that most of us don't even pause to ask if it concerns a practical issue. What would, what would Jesus have to do with my relationship? Man, I'm sitting here really wrestling with one of my kids. Do I go to the latest book or is there just a sense of, God, I really need your wisdom here? And, and again, I'm not trying to be some, some sort of like legalistic, you got to run it all by him. But at the same time, there's an awareness of his presence and his intention to dis disrupt not just your religious life, but the whole thing. And to bring the whole thing in alignment with his purposes and priorities. And so I just want to simply ask, well, no, we're not, we're not saying you've got you've to like, seek a command or handwriting on the wall for everything that you do. No, that'd be paralyzing. I've been around people who do that. 
And I just go, no, no, he's giving you wisdom and common sense. Use that. But at the same time, I think many of us go to the opposite extreme and just assume in practical issues, my experience, my expertise, my training, that's enough. And I just want to open us up to the possibility that there are times Jesus may ask you to do something so upside down, so nonconformist, so backwards, that if you dare to follow, he'll swamp your boat, but not in the way you think. So we have these little boxes. My romantic life, my work life, my student life, my religious life. He's got that. What's it look like to allow him into others? Now, look at me. I know this is no-brainer stuff. And I know that you're knowing that it's no-brainer stuff. If it's like my knowing that it's no-brainer stuff, doesn't really amount to much. Because we actually just sort of live like God were there, but not real interested. And I would just love to see in my life and others the pause that just says, hey, Jesus, is there anything you want to say into this? You got an opinion on which car I get? You got an opinion on what house to buy? You got an opinion on what major I should take? You got an opinion over my class schedule? Now, the vast majority of the time, guess what he says? Nothing. Nothing. But there have been a couple of times when It's out of left field, it's upside down, and there's no way I would have thought of that myself. The reluctant followership of that command has led to boats being swamped in ways I could have never dreamt up myself. So we just want to be a community that just pauses and asks. Jesus isn't just Lord of this box, He's Lord of the whole thing. Now, what does God do with people like Peter? Notice, verse uh, 9. Peter says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Verse 9, for he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, right? Angels always say this, Jesus says this, from now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. Now, last week we were wrestling with what kind of people does God use? Broken and sinful people, because those are the only kinds there are. But the qualifications for usefulness in the kingdom, it's just one. It's humility. The recognition you don't belong, you don't deserve, and yet, there's something about this Jesus that's compelling. But then what does God do with you once you're in? That's the question sitting before us this morning. And what God does once you're in is the same thing He's done the whole story. Adam and Eve, God creates the world, creates human beings in his image, male and female, he created them. And does he say to them, hey, here's a garden, just sit back and enjoy? Nope, he says, here's a garden, work it, take care of it, steward it, do something with it. They were, think of them as tiny little mirrors that were to reflect the glory, the benevolence, the goodness of God's governorship. They were to take that and reflect it into all of the nooks and crannies of the created world. That was their job as image bearers. And how'd they do? Good for two chapters. <laughs> Chapter three comes, and they now become part of the problem, right? They, instead of stewarding creation, they listen to creation. So they put themselves under creation. They become part of the issue. They are still mirrors, yes, but they're really smudgy and fractured. So, God's move number two. 
I'm going to call a man Abram. Abram, I know your wife's barren. I know you guys are really old, past childbearing age, but guess what? I'm going to give you a child, and through that child, you will be a great nation. And through that great nation will come a blessing for the whole world. And he gives the nation a job description. You're to be little mirrors reflecting the goodness and the benevolence, my majesty and power into the reaches, every nook and cranny of created order. How'd they do? They became part of the problem too, right? What do you do when God's people become people that need God's salvation? And so... God sends Jesus. And the way Luke tells the story is Adam was the son of God who failed. Israel was the son of God who failed. Jesus now comes as the unique, unrepeatable son of God who succeeds where everyone else failed. And what's the first thing that Jesus now does? He gathers around himself a community. Now this this is so important. God's salvation has always been worked out in a community. So, humanity was the, the community of humanity. They were to be the mirrors. And then the community of Israel, they were to be the mirrors. And now Jesus is going to arrange around himself an assembly of sinners, outcasts and misfits. He's going to transform them. And he looks at a guy like Peter and says, Hey, yeah, yeah, when you used to fish for fish, it would lead to the fish's death. You are going to catch people. And when you catch people my way, it leads to those people's life. So he looks at Peter and says, guess what? If you're going to follow me, we got work to do. What's the work to be done? Same work that Israel was given, same work Adam and Eve were given. To be tiny mirrors reflecting the goodness and leadership of what it's like to live under God's rule into the nooks and crannies of the created order. So it's no coincidence that Jesus starts calling disciples. This is how God works. This is what God does. He always assembles a collection of human beings who only have humility and sinfulness in common. Right? And then what he does is he gives them work to do. So, big point for this morning is simply this. If you're going to follow Jesus, he will lead you to catch people. Pretty easy. If you have no interest in catching people, then you have not followed Jesus. God has always intended for his people to receive blessing in order to pass it on. Literally, you could sum up the entire New Testament ethic in saying, whatever you've received from God, you give away. And the danger in Israel and the danger in the church is when God's people become convinced the blessings are just for them, not through them. And so what we have in the American church is we we now have, because we're not persecuted, because there's no urgency, because we've lost track of mission, we just love to argue over all of these internal things, right? We're going to disagree over worship styles. We're going to disagree over how many times you baptize somebody. We're going to disagree over what you wear to a church. We're going to disagree about the programs you offer in a church. We're going to split. We're going to fracture. We're going to fragment. Meanwhile, the world gets darker and darker and darker, and the darker it gets, the more the church just wants to back away from it. It's too messy. And we just want to simply say, listen, we've ceased following the Jesus of the Scriptures if you're not in the muck and the mire of people's lives. 
If all you do is hang around people just like you, they talk like you, they act like you, and they believe like you, you're not fishing anymore. You're swimming. Right? You're just sitting there. And I know we know this, but following Jesus biblically always leads to mission. Always. And whether or not you have the gift of evangelism is irrelevant to that conversation. Every single gospel ends with Jesus commissioning his followers to continue his work. And men and women, I mean, I, you know, people will say, well, how come Jesus isn't doing the big stuff he used to do? And I say, well, one of the reasons has to be because we evaluate church services the same way we evaluate movies. Right? It doesn't matter if he's here or not. It doesn't matter if we're equipped or not. It doesn't matter if, 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 if his people are in mission or not. What matters is whether or not I liked it. And so we talk about the style. We talk about the sermon. And let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, just if I can give you a word from the Lord, he doesn't care if you like it or not. It's not for you. This is a staff meeting of missionaries. We get together weekly and we get mended and put together and reminded because the real work is out there. Now, I know we know the theory, but how little does that actually inform the choices we make? And again, I'm not piling on. I mean, to me, this is, this, I need reminded of this because I grew up in a church. We had a world map. Right in the middle was Lexington, Ohio. And you had string to all of our missionaries overseas. And let me tell you, those missionaries are worthy of special support and prayer and blessing. That is a unique, unique call. And once a year, we'd have missions week where they'd come back and report in. And that is needed. But what was the implication The implication is that those were our missionaries and I was something else. And I don't think that quite fits what the scriptures say. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are an ambassador of reconciliation. You are a minister. There is a priesthood of all believers that we embrace. You are on mission. You are already a witness. The question is, who are you witnessing to? What are you witnessing about? Are you a mirror that just reflects the cultural values of American Western culture in the 21st century? Or have you been captured by this radical Jesus so that it looks a bit odd when you compare your life to somebody else's? See, brothers and sisters, because we're not persecuted and because we've lost our sense of urgency in these things, we debate and we fragment, we argue and we split. And I think Jesus sometimes says, fantastic gang, I'm going to do some work over here. If you follow this Jesus, this is where he takes you. There is no other place he goes. The Father, and the Father sends the Son, the Father and Son send the Spirit, the Father, Son, and Spirit birth the church with the same job description that the people of God have had the whole time to be little bitty images reflections and mirrors of the goodness of his rule and to fill the entire created order order with that glory. And so, brothers and sisters, it's very commonly said, yeah, 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 I don't really have the gift of evangelism. It's really uncomfortable for me. And I, I totally get that. We do have some folks that are incredibly gifted that way. But every single gospel ends with a commission for God's people to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so we just need to keep out before us 
what it is that God has called us to do. If we will follow him, this is where he takes us. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. There is no plan B. He came into the world, gathered a people, and commissions them with his presence, filled by his spirit, guided by his truth, meeting in community as a family, but going courageously into the world. Every now and again, my wife and I take the kids out for dinner. We're fans of Ruby's on Tuesday night. Kids eat free. And uh, one, of the thing, one of the great things that's happened to us over the course of years is that we've worked for a number of large churches in Orange County. And so it's rare that we go anywhere and not, we're not recognized. So we just kind of always assume that people know who we are and what we do, which is really, really good accountability. But one of the, one of the things that, that started to happen several years ago, and it happens to this day, is that, you know, we'll kind of eat our meal and get to the check, and the server will come over with just kind of a smile on, on his or her face, and they'll just say, Bill was taken care of. Someone else paid it. And, and immediately, you know, we start looking around, trying to figure out, okay, who, should we, should we have ordered dessert? I mean, that would have been not, you know, I mean, you just, you know, and, 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 and what's happened with us has been the, the joy of receive, being on the receiving end of that more times than I can count has led us to now, if we happen to recognize somebody, you know, we're trying to figure out how to pay for their meal, right? The joy of receiving has easily translated into the joy of blessing. And that's kind of how I look at mission. It, it, if, if you sit in wonderment of what it is that God has done, naturally and inevitably, the joyful job description you now have is the same one as the server who gets to go to every table and, and just simply say, Bill's been taken care of. Your bill's been taken care of. Yeah, the, the guilt-shame thing, taken care of. Right? I mean, you're, you're not sharing Christianity. Can we agree? You're sharing Jesus. Don't ever defend the Crusades, the Inquisition, or the hypocrites in church. That, who, who's that? Right? If you want to know how to share your faith, simple. Hey, let's read the book of Mark together. You write down every question you have. Next week we'll get together, and any question I don't know the answer to, I'll find. You're sharing Jesus. Now Him, I love talking about Him. If I've got to defend a system of believing and orthodoxy and the institutional church, i got nothing. But he's amazing. So your job is simply in the way that you live and the way that you speak, put the beauty and majesty of Jesus on display. End of story. And when the time comes for words, and it will come, bill's been paid. Bill's been paid. I mean, you can pay it if you want to. It's dumb, but it's been paid. Right? See, what's happened to that sense? That's what, people will naturally talk about what they love. Right? If, I, if I'm around a golfer, my goodness. <laughs> or you know who the worst people are now? CrossFit people. <laughs> that is a cult. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's not a Christian thing. Don't CrossFit. Don't. It's not. Right? I mean, or, or somebody who's a new grandma. How long do you talk with them before they're showing pictures, right? 
And, and I, just, I just wonder if we've, we've ceased being compelled by this Jesus. And that's the reason why it's work. And so, brothers and sisters, it felt like we could have moved off of this passage, but there were two kind of big points to make. One is the very simple, very obvious. So what box you got him in? I mean, does he, do you consider him as Lord over your business? And I don't mean in theory. I mean in the way that you do it. Is he Lord over the way you run your classroom or your house? And again, it's not being paralyzed with, okay, Jesus, you've got to speak to everything, but it's at least pausing once in a while to ask. And then the second very obvious point that Luke makes so often, it gets lost. That is, you cannot follow this Jesus and not be carried straight into the arms of a hurting and broken world. Because who are the best people to reach broken, sinful human beings? Other broken, sinful human beings. So how do we reach lawyers? Ah, we call some of Jesus' kids into law and send them into the profession. How do we reach teachers? Ah, we call some people out of college into the teaching profession, and there they are. Right? How many businesses and schools, senior living facilities and households are already embedded with full-time missionaries who just need to wake up? So I dare you. I will take one set of applause. I will take you, young lady. No, no, no. That's the rest of it isn't as important as that one. You are a trendsetter. So it felt like this was worth another look. Because for me, i got to be honest with you, every decision I make, I want to be guided by the mission of Jesus. End of story. For our church... For my life, my household, my marriage, my kids. So what's it look like when a whole group of people decides to get together weekly, have a staff meeting, and practice? That's our dream for this community. So close your eyes if you would. So, Father, you see us. Nothing's hidden from you. We love you. And we recognize we are so in process. But we ask that you would awaken in us such a passion for you, that you would stagger us, that you would reveal yourself to us with such power and such glory and such majesty that it's just quite natural to talk about how beautiful you are. And God, that you would, you would capture our hearts again by what drives you. And Father, that the, the folks in our midst who are still outside of your kingdom would get a sense of how much you love them from how we are together. And Father, most of all, would we look more and more like you. And so we give you authority and say so over our businesses, over our households, over our marriages, and over our children over our sexual issues and hang-ups and sins. We want to give you say-so in all of those ways. And we thank you for the grace that is in Jesus to love us into our future. That you don't condemn us, but you love us and you call us and you invite us. And so Jesus, pour out your Holy Spirit on this community that we might reflect you.